faith. My name is Ray Burns, and I create podcast and blog content that equips Christians to approach every area of life with a biblical worldview. Today, I will be discussing my three-step guide for reading the Bible well. If we're honest about it, reading the Bible can be incredibly difficult. It can say weird things, it has very difficult names, and if you're around Christians long enough, you'll realize that even one Bible verse isn't agreed upon between multiple groups. Now, a large part of that is because, as modern-day Christians, we actually don't often know how to read the Bible well. We know how to read it, we know how to crack it open, maybe we'll throw it open one day and see where God leads our reading, maybe we will have a verse that comes to our phone once a day, but really digging in and understanding how to read the Bible, how to understand what God has revealed to us, is something a lot of us don't understand, and that's often because it's a very difficult process to start, but once we understand how to read the Bible well, how to really dig in and see what it is that God has revealed about himself to us and what that means for our lives, reading the Bible can only be done one way because the way that we're going to discuss does nothing more than simply tries to say, what is God saying? What does it mean? And what does that mean for my life? Very simple, very good goals, but let's really talk about why we want to do this. The number one reason to do it is because it will just make our Bible reading mean more to us. A lot of us can spend days or even years opening our Bible every day and just not getting much out of it. We see the words, we can even recite the words to people, but it doesn't hit our hearts truly. Another benefit to reading it well is that we can not only understand what we're reading, but we can actually explain it. And that's good for both giving ourselves wise counsel out of the Bible, as well as friends and family giving them wise counsel out of God's word and not basing it on opinion, but simply being able to explain to them, here's what God says, what are you going to do about it? And that's useful for us, it's useful for friends, it's useful for everyone around us. And finally, when we truly understand what God is revealing, our walk with Christ is going to be so much deeper and so much richer because it's based on truth, first of all. It's not based on opinion. It's not based on emotion. It's not based on setting our beliefs after what our pastor says or what our parents told us or what our spouse says is correct. Our walk with Christ is going to be based on nothing more than the very Bible that reveals who he is and why he matters. And really, it's important for us as Christians to be very responsible when we're handling the Bible, because this is the primary means that God gives us to understand who he is, what he desires. And if this is the all-encompassing, life-changing book that we say it is, then it only makes sense that we're going to want to do whatever it takes in order for us to understand it to the best of our ability. Now, obviously, some of us are going to be better or worse than others in some areas of understanding, but what we're going to talk about today is something that every Christian is capable of doing. It's really just a matter of self-discipline and care and really just a matter of time and growing accustomed to reading a Bible in the way that maybe is completely foreign to a lot of people. Now, a way that most Christians are familiar with is something that I think actually goes back to general literary criticism. In other words, when people will read especially older novels or older historical works or things like that, there's this idea called literary criticism. And a popular way of doing that today is to look at what is said and say, well, we can't understand what the author's 
worldview is like. We can't fully understand their setting. We can't fully understand why they're saying this. So what does it mean to me today in what I'm reading? And what that does is it makes the truth personal. In other words, what's true for you may not be true for me. It just depends on what it means to us, how we interpret it, how we understand it. I can't tell you you're wrong, and you can't tell me I'm wrong because we've just arrived at two different truths. But of course, that's not how truth works when it comes to God. If God is the God of truth, God only has one truth to him. There's only one thing he means. There's only one thing that is actual when it comes to him. And so as we're trying to get away from this idea of what does this verse mean to you, we instead need to replace it with, a deeper understanding of what the Bible truly is, because the Bible is not a matter of opinion. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So first of all, we need to understand that the Bible was written by men, Moses, David, Solomon, Paul, Matthew, but it was all inspired by God. In other words, everything that was originally written by these authors was 100% true. It was what God wanted them to get across. It was what God wanted people at that time to hear or read or understand. And so because God had one original meaning, we as Christians can only walk away with one meaning. Another important thing to realize about the Bible, and something that I think a lot of us understand but may not fully comprehend when we're reading it, is that the Bible is actually a historical book. A lot of times as Christians, we see the book headings and the big bold chapter numbers and the little tiny verse numbers all throughout our text and we start reading it almost like an instruction manual or even just a series of bullet points. We read it as just a series of rules or isolated ideas where what's said in verse 3 doesn't have anything to do with what's said in verse 4. We can split them apart and make them say whatever we want on their own. But what we need to realize is that The Bible isn't just our way of proving our opinions are correct because we can point to a single Bible verse. Each book of the Bible was written start to finish with a purpose, especially things like the first five books of the Bible, the prophets, basically all of the New Testament. All of it was written with a start and an end in mind. And because of that, it's important to understand that everything that was written there had a purpose. So whether it's the Bible, whether it's something historical like something Shakespeare wrote or an ancient book of history or something like Plato's Republic. We can't just open it up, point to a sentence in the middle of a page and say, oh, here's what the writer wants us to understand. No, any responsible writing requires us, first of all, to understand the time period something was written in, the culture that it was written to, what kind of literature it is. In other words, is it poetry? Is it history? Is it prophecy? And above all, we need to understand the entire purpose of it being written. In other words, was it meant to persuade readers? Was it meant to encourage? Was it meant to challenge? Was it written with broad ideas in mind? Or was there something very specific that the writer wanted to get across to a group of people? And in the end, the big question here is, why did the writer say what they said? And this is important for us to understand because in 2 Timothy 2.15, It says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. So when we read our Bibles responsibly, when we really dig into this method that we're going to discuss, it's not just a way of doing it. This is how we truly see the majesty of God. This is how we see what it's like to live a life fully surrendered to Christ. 
So as we get into this, I'm going to warn you, it's difficult, it's sometimes frustrating, and it can feel like such a burden at first because it's so much more difficult than simply opening the Bible, reading a little bit, and calling it a day. Because this actually requires us to be students of God's Word. It requires us to study and know and not just love God with our hearts, but also love Him with our minds and glorify Him with our minds. So let's dig into it, and I hope that you won't be put off by how dry or difficult it sounds, because what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the basics of it in this episode, and in the next episode, we're actually going to dig into a very popular Bible verse, one that a lot of you might have tattooed on your arm or written up on your walls or on your coffee cup, and we're going to apply this way of reading the Bible to it to hopefully see God in a much more incredible and awe-inspiring way. So let's talk about this three-step process. Now, the first step is 100% the most difficult part of this. This will occupy your frustration and your time and your study more than the other two steps combined. But this is a critical one because without it, we cannot understand why the Bible is saying what it's saying, why God is revealing to us what he's revealing. So the first step is that we need to understand who the original audience was. And this is important because whatever we're reading in the Bible was written to a specific person or a specific group at a certain time in history. In other words, the Bible wasn't written to be just put into a big collection of 66 books and given to Christians today. Each book was written with a specific purpose, with a specific group in mind, and in a way didn't even have other books of the Bible in mind in terms of if Genesis says this, well, how do we compare that to what we see in Proverbs or Jeremiah? The Bible is simply a collection of writings that God has divinely inspired for Christians to really just understand him better. And so when we consider the historical audience, what we're actually doing is saying, what was the writer's reason for writing what they wrote? And what was their reader's reaction to it? So there's really four questions that we can ask to help us understand who the original audience was. First, we ask ourselves, who is saying this? Is it a king making a proclamation? Is it God speaking to Israel? Is it Christ speaking to the Jews? Who is the speaker in what we're reading? Second is, who are they talking to? Because what Christ said to the Jews was often very different from what he said to the Gentiles. And it's important to understand who he's speaking to so that we can then understand the next part, which is, why are they saying it? So when Israel was in the wilderness and they were being bitten by snakes and they were told to look at a statue of a snake to be healed, we need to understand why this was happening in the first place. Does that mean that if any of us are poisoned, we should look to a snake statue to be healed? Or is there something more going on here? By understanding the historical context here, we can better understand that, no, looking at a statue of a snake isn't what heals us. There's something more going on here, but we can't understand that without understanding first the historical audience, the original audience. And finally, what did this mean to those who heard it? Christ said something, John wrote something, David wrote something. He wrote it to a specific people. He had a purpose for it. What was it? And how did the people receive it? Did they receive it with gladness? Did they fall down in repentance and want to change their ways? Did they react with anger towards God? 
what purpose would this serve in the lives of those who heard whatever it is that we're reading in the Bible? And all this is important because, like I said, a prophet would speak to Israel. Paul would speak to a specific church. Christ would speak often to the Jews. When we understand who is speaking, who they're speaking to, and why, then we can get a much deeper and more rich understanding of what it is that's going on in what we're reading. And a popular way to remember this is the phrase context is king. The context of what we're reading, the original audience, the time period, the setting, the type of writing we're reading, whether it's poetry or history or prophecy, whatever the context is, is going to be the most important thing to consider before we do anything else because all of that will affect everything we understand about it. So as a quick example, there's a lot of Christians today who will challenge the book of Genesis, the first two chapters. They will say that, well, Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is mythology, it's a metaphor, it's ancient Israel trying to explain their own creation story by putting God in it. And this becomes problematic because when we understand who wrote this, which was Moses, we would say, we understand why they wrote it, and why he wrote it has a lot to do with the type of writing it is, because all the rest of Genesis, most Christians would read as history, as historical. In other words, what is being said is what happened. So the story of Cain and Abel, they would say, is what happened. The flood, most would say, is what happened. On and on, as people would read Genesis, they would say, well, yes, this is historical. This is what the writers are porting on what happened. And this becomes problematic because when we try to take the first two chapters of Genesis and say, well, this is metaphor, this is poetic, this is flowery language, it becomes an issue because this takes place in the exact same writing as everything else that we say is history. And so when we consider the original audience, we realize that, well, Genesis 1 and 2 are written in the same language, the same understanding, and are meant to be taken with the same amount of historical fact as everything else we read. Like I said, step one Understanding the original audience, understanding the setting and the context is the most difficult. But we praise God that we are in the year currently 2020 and not the year 200 because we have many ways to understand the context of what we're reading. Number one, and one of the best ways, is to simply read what's happening around a certain verse. What happens before? What happens after? What do we understand about the author? and its audience, and things like that. What can we get from the Bible that explains what we're reading in the Bible? Second is just any kind of historical info you can get in most Bibles. Most books of the Bible will have a brief little history snippet about the setting, about the purpose of the writing, and things like that, and that can help us understand why certain things are being said. Personal study is also a great way. There are a ridiculous amount of books out there and YouTube videos and movies and documentaries and all kinds of stuff that can help us better understand what is happening in a particular book of the Bible. And finally, we as Christians today benefit from all those who came before us, and even those who are alive right now. We get to stand on the shoulders of these giants who have put in so much work and dedicated so much of their lives to digging into God's Word, understanding the historical context, pulling apart all these seemingly random events and people and places and putting it all together to help us truly understand what actually happened in the Bible so that we as Christians can get a fuller understanding, that we can understand God more, and that we can just serve Christ more deeply because we have such a better understanding, not just of 
what is being said, but why and where. And so once we have the original audience taken care of, once we know the time period, what kind of book it is that we're reading, who's speaking, why they're speaking, who they're speaking to, we can get into stuff that is significantly simpler to handle. So we have step one, the original audience, and now we get to step two, which is the timeless audience. Now that might seem like a weird word because all of us are in time, right? We're reading the Bible in some year, so how can we have a timeless audience? What this means is that when we understand what's being said in the Bible, we can pull truths from it that are going to be true for all Christians and all time. In other words, what we read in John 3.16, Romans 8.28, Jeremiah 29.11, what's being said there has one big meaning for Christians in the year 200, in the year 2020, and even in the year 3000. There is one broad truth that we can all agree on and all gain from what's being said. Now, the best way to really get this out of the text is to realize one important thing about the Bible, and that is that the Bible is not written to us. As we discussed, when we see Moses talking to Israel, when we see Jeremiah talking to Israel, when we see Christ talking to the Jews, when we read Paul speaking to the church in Ephesus, they are all speaking to specific Christians who really existed, who had real problems and real lives, and had a real history with the writer or the speaker. And it's so critical that we understand that because when we read things in the Bible like you or we or us, our names are never actually there. Paul wasn't thinking of us when he spoke to people. And this becomes important because when we look at Romans 8.28, God works all things together for good. Yes, he does, but he's not saying that he works together for our individual personal good. There's a much bigger idea going on in that verse, and we can get it by reading really all of Romans, but especially the verses leading up to it and the verses after it. Jeremiah 29.11, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. God's not saying, I know the plans I have for you, Bible reader in the year 2020, sitting at home at 6.30 in the morning on your chair drinking coffee. That's not the you that he's speaking to. He is speaking to a very specific audience. And so we today, if we aren't being spoken to, what we're really doing, and this is how I like to think about it, is that we are essentially eavesdropping on a historical conversation. We are sitting on the side and listening to God speak to somebody. We are listening to different Israelites throughout history speaking to other people. We are seeing what they actually said and did and getting information from that. And so when we consider the timeless audience, what we're really considering is seeing what happened. What does that tell me about who God is, how sinful Samson was, how easily Israel slipped into temptation and idolatry? After understanding the original audience, what does that tell us? What information can we gain from that? What basic truth does this reveal about God, about humanity, about sin and salvation, and things like that? Now, finally, once we understand the historical truth of what was being said, and then from there, we get the timeless truth, what is true for all Christians for all time. Now we can do our favorite part of Bible reading and say, what does it mean to me as the modern audience? And that step three is applying it to the modern audience, the modern reader. And this is what your pastor likely does on Sunday mornings after digging into 
a particular text and explaining what's going on and the important truths that are taught. Most sermons will end with, okay, here's the takeaway. Here's what it means for your life. As Christians, we love to dig into the Bible and see what is God telling me about my life. And the hard thing is that this is where we want to jump to as soon as we open our Bible. We want to open it. We want to spend five seconds reading and we want to say, okay, what does this mean for me? What are you telling me? And it's hard to say this without sounding harsh, but if we skip the historical audience, if we skip the timeless truth, then what we're doing is just skipping truth altogether. Because without understanding why something's being said, we can't possibly understand what it means for us. All we can do is look at words and just take them to mean whatever it is that we want. We base the truth of the Bible on our opinions, on our reading level, on our own desires, on our religious traditions. All kinds of things come into play if we just open the Bible, read what it says, and say, aha, here's what it means to me. And so while this is the step we want to end at, this is the step that is, of course, going to have the greatest impact on us. This step has got to come at the end of everything else that we've done leading up to it. But once we've done the hard work, once we've laid that foundation, this is not only the easiest step, but it's also the most meaningful. Not just because it applies to us, but because we have taken the time to see God so fully and so richly. We've understood who he is, how he works, why he does what he does. We've seen what Israel does and how so similar we are to them, how often they run after idols and fall into idolatry, and how we're no different from them. We can see what they do and why they do it. We can understand how Israel chasing after idols for the 30th time is a picture of all Christians at all times. And from there, we can look and say, okay, if Israel's chasing after idols, if Israel is turning away from God and getting invested in the culture around them, do I do that? Does that reflect me? Is that how my heart is? And I don't know a single Christian that can't say yes. Absolutely that applies to me. But it's only once we've done the hard work, understood why things are happening, understanding God's reaction, why God calls for them to do what he calls them to do, that it can really change our lives because we get to arrive at the full truth of God, see him fully for who he is, see humanity fully for what we are and what we're not especially. And through good, sometimes difficult, but responsible Bible reading, our relationship with God gets to grow so much more and it gets to mean so much more to us that no matter what comes in life, we are so convinced of truth, not because of what our opinion of a certain verse is, but because we know the truth of not just a verse or even a chapter or even a book, but the entire Bible and how God has revealed himself in it. Now, I know that was a lot, and some of you might be on complete brain overload right now. And I'd love to just tie this up with a nice little bow and just make it a gentle send-off, but instead, we're going to talk about some big words. So I call this my three-step guide, and I'll be honest, this is not original with me. It's not original from the person I learned it from. This is actually a very historical way of reading the Bible. And today, we call that exegesis. And if you've been around Bible nerds like me long enough, you've probably heard that term thrown around. Now, what that term simply means is finding what something means and pulling truth out of that. In other words, like we've discussed, we understand what's being said, why it's being said, how it applies... And then from there, we pull that truth out and put it into our lives and say, understanding what I know about God, what I know about people, what does this mean to me today? That's, in a nutshell, what exegesis. You may have noticed your pastor does this when he 
takes a section of scripture, explains who the audience is, why Paul is saying what he's saying, things like that, kind of pulls out kind of big truths about what's being said here, and then finally ends with the classic three points. Here's what we learn from what we've read. That, in a nutshell, is all exegesis is. So, next time you talk to your pastor, you can walk by and just very casually just say, oh, pastor, that was some great exegesis today. And most likely he's just going to raise his eyebrows and be like, ah, you're in the know. So, there's one word for you, exegesis. Now, the archenemy of exegesis, and unfortunately, it's the way of reading the Bible that most of us are familiar with, and that's called eisegesis. Now, what eisegesis does is it just, it doesn't care about context. It doesn't care about meaning. It just says, well, what does it mean to me? What can I make this say? What is my opinion on what's being said? Now, kind of a classic example of this to give some perspective is Matthew eighteen twenty, a very innocent verse. It says, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now, you may have heard this and think, oh, well, that just means that when Christians are together, God is more present. He, he's more active. He's, he's more engaged or involved with. Them. And if we use eisegesis to look at that, in other words, if we just look at these series of words and say, well, what, what does this random scrap of, a, of the Bible mean? Then that makes sense. But if we really think about it, if one of the characteristics of God is that he is omnipresent, in other words, he's everywhere at all times in his fullness then it doesn't make sense that God is somehow more present or more active because Christians are together. And it almost turns God into this weird Saturday morning cartoon where you've got a group of kids with these power rings, and when they put them close together, then they summon Captain Planet or transform like the Wonder Twins did or things like that. And so when we use eisegesis, we run the dangerous risk of not just misunderstanding what's being said, but actually compromising the truth of who God is what he wants us to understand, or in this case, completely misunderstanding what it means for Christians to be gathered together and for Christ to be among them and what that means. Now, if you want to understand the exegesis of it, you're going to have to read Matthew 18. You're going to have to talk to a pastor, talk to some friends, dig into the historical context and things like that, and hopefully have some fun doing it. But in the end, why bother doing all this? It is so much easier to read our verse for the day, flip open the Bible, point to a random verse, and say, okay, God, what are you teaching? And there are so many benefits to it. Three big ones that come to my mind are that, first of all, if we do this hard work, if we try to understand what's being said, one, we're going to be able to replace our opinion with God's truth. We don't have to look at all these different Bible verses and say, well, what does this mean to me? What does this mean to you? Am I right? I don't know. I sure hope so. By understanding how to read our Bibles well, how to open God's Word and read it responsibly and interpret it and explain it and discuss it correctly, what's being said isn't going to be a matter of what does this mean to me versus what it means to you. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what it means to us. Our opinions about who God is and what He wants for our lives means absolutely nothing. What matters is what does God say here? Who is God? What is he revealing about himself in this verse, in this passage, in this entire book? And when we can truly understand what God is saying, what he means, what he's revealing, then another benefit is that we just get to know God and and truly know him. Because God's given us this book. He's given us this amazing gift in the Bible where he has primarily used it to reveal himself to us. And what's so incredible about it is that I can sit here in America and read a part of the Bible, and someone in India 
or Afghanistan or Africa can read the exact same thing. And we can come together and we can come to the same conclusion. Because if God is a God of truth, then he has one thing that is true about him. I wish I could find the quote, but I once heard someone say that if something in the Bible has more than one meaning, it's actually meaningless. And I love that because if who God is can be left up to what I think versus what you think, then what we're doing isn't trying to dig into who God truly is. It's who we want God to be. It's who we're forming God to be in our mind. And if you study things, especially things like heresy throughout church history, in other words, all these false teachings and false beliefs about Christ and God and the Bible and salvation, a lot of it often boils down to really just bad Bible reading methods. It's about someone reading a verse, getting an interpretation, and saying that this is truth without actually digging in and saying, okay, but how does this compare to the 10 verses that came before it and the 20 verses that followed it? And so when we do the hard work and read responsibly, we aren't learning about a God that exists because of our opinion. We can actually push our opinions aside, push our desires aside, and just say, God, here's who you are, and I know it because you've revealed it in your word. I've gone through the difficulty of understanding what you're saying, why you're saying it. And through that, I've gotten a much more clear picture of who you are. And the best part is that when we understand how to read a verse, we don't just understand who God is in that verse. When we start to truly know God and truly understand God, then he reveals so much more about himself than just a few words on a page. We get to see him for his love and his mercy and his glory and his grace and we don't just love him for those things. We can also love him for his wrath and his demand for justice and his righteous anger. And despite being unable to understand it, we can love him for his unknowable power and the impossibility of just fully grasping who he is. But that's not possible by just cracking open the Bible randomly and pointing to a verse and reading it. We can only truly know God by truly finding him and seeing him and what he's revealed in his word. And then finally, as I discussed at the beginning of this, another benefit is that we glorify God not just with our hearts, but also with our mind. By not just loving God because of how he makes us feel, but by setting our minds after him, focusing, and by especially saying, God, I don't want ease. I don't want comfort. I don't want simple. I just want to know you. Then we love him with our minds because we are putting our minds through something that we could choose not to do, but because we love God and want to know more of him and have more of him present in our minds and in our hearts, then we're not just glorifying him with our hearts, we're glorifying him with our minds, and from there we're going to glorify him with our entire lives. And so I hope this wasn't too much. I hope it's not too difficult. But if it is, if you're struggling, if you're just not getting how to do this or what this even looks like, Stick around, because like I said, in the next episode, we're going to dig into a very popular Bible verse, Jeremiah 29, 11. As a reminder, that says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. So if you have this verse tattooed on your arm or painted up on your walls, I will warn you, in the first few minutes of the episode, you might get a little mad at me. But if you stick around... If you listen to how we cast aside the popular understanding of this verse and dig into who God is speaking to here and why, when we dig into what this reveals to us about the character and nature of God and then how that applies to our lives, 
we are going to get such a bigger picture of who God truly is. And we're going to be able to glorify him even more because we're going to take a verse that we often use and say, oh, the best thing about God is that he's going to give me a comfortable life. We're going to throw that aside, see what God is truly saying about where joy comes from, where our comfort is, where our salvation is. And we're going to end that episode by saying, God, you are amazing. Whether I'm happy, whether I'm prosperous, you are so good. And we'll be able to do that because we will be reading the Bible responsibly, reading it well, and following this three-step guide. This has been an audio recording from Onward in the Faith. You can support this ministry every month by going to patreon.com slash onward in the faith. To read the article about this topic, you can find the link in the show notes. Or you can read many more topics like this by visiting onwardinthefaith.com. Thanks for listening.